This morning's scripture reading almost doesn't need to be read. All I need to tell you is it's the 23rd Psalm and you guys could recite it to me. But since I get paid for doing this, I have to read it. <laughs> A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we are wrapping up our sermon series on the Psalms. We're going to be going in a little different direction, talking about the gospel over the next five weeks. But I wanted to finish by talking about what is undoubtedly one of the most familiar and beloved passages of all of Scripture, the 23rd Psalm. And I want to dig into the figurative language that's going on and try to give you a fresh understanding of it. Uh, and I also want to take this, this uh, psalm out of its common funeral context and uh, give it a little bit of a broader context. Um, so to do that, before I do that, let's have a little bit of fun. In 1995 and in 1999, the Washington Post invited readers to submit what they called painfully bad analogies. Painfully bad analogies. So these are analogies and metaphors that are really, really bad. And these are some of the top picks, and these are some of my favorites of the top picks. So, he was as tall as a six foot three inch tree. Her face was a perfect oval, like a circle that had its two sides gently compressed by a thigh master. John and Mary had never met. They were like two hummingbirds who had also never met. She had a deep, throaty, genuine laugh, like that sound a dog makes just before throwing up. The little boat jet. The little boat gently drifted across the pond, exactly the way a bowling ball wouldn't. The ballerina rose gracefully and pointed, extended one slender leg behind her, like a dog at a fire hydrant. He fell for her like his heart was a mob informant, and she was the East River. <laughs> I might get in trouble for this. Um, she was as easy as the TV Guide crossword puzzle. <laughs> the plan was simple, like my brother-in-law, Phil. But unlike Phil, this plan might just work. <laughs> Her artistic sense was exquisitely refined, like someone who can tell butter from, I can't believe it's not butter. His thoughts tumbled in his head, making and breaking alliances like underpants in a dryer without cling-free. <laughs> Two more. He was, uh, he was as lame as a duck. Not a metaphorically lame duck, 
either, but a real duck that was actually lame, maybe from stepping on a landmine or something. And I, this is the one I really like. Her vocabulary was as bad as, like, whatever. <laughs> Metaphors and analogies are tricky things. A metaphor is a literary device where one thing is described by comparing it to another thing. The Greek word meta meaning over and phara meaning carry. So you're carrying over meaning from one thing to meaning to another. And uh, the point is to try to help you understand something better. The problem is they, they don't always work, right? Metaphors don't always work. They don't always land. They can say nothing. They can be used to say too much. They can be misread to say something that was not originally intended. The best metaphors are simple. You hear them, you get them, you understand them, and they stick with you. The normally everyday things that everybody can understand. The challenge for us is that the Bible is full of metaphors, it's full of story, it's full of figurative language. But the challenge is this, these metaphors are 2,000 to 3,500 years old. So when we read them, they don't always make sense immediately to us the way they would have in their original context. We have to do some work to understand them. Imagine if you went to the first century and shared one of the great metaphors of our time. You'll appreciate this. That life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Okay? Imagine explaining that to somebody in the first century. They'd have to say, well, wait, what's chocolate? They don't know what chocolate is. Wait, what's a box? What do you mean a box? What's a box and a box of chocolates? They would have no idea what you are saying. But we have a similar problem when we read the Bible and we hear about sheep gates, living waters, or wells. In fact, sometimes it's a problem because we can hear well and think it's like our well instead of what their well was. When the Bible talks about light, you and I take it for granted because we have electricity. You've been able to turn lights on, most of you, your whole life. Now, what about if you're in a culture where there is no electricity, where you are reliant on creating fire and creating your own light, and you, you spend a lot of your life wondering about that? You can buy bread in the grocery store, but in the Bible, bread as a metaphor is really important because it was a staple of life. If you didn't take care of your bread making, okay, if you didn't bring home the bread, then you would die because that was such an important part of life. You and I can go to the store and buy salt, and we have a refrigerator, but salt in the Bible is something that's used to preserve food. They didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have salt the same way we do. And so we have to be careful with these metaphors, with the symbolism of Scripture, and Scripture is full of it, full of that symbolism. We've got to be careful whenever we read symbolism and metaphor and analogy that we don't miss it because we put our own cultural blinders on to it. And there may be no metaphor that's more powerful in the scripture and no metaphor that we mess up more than the image of shepherding. It's important to understand that because we have all seen sheep, probably. Have you seen sheep? I have a cousin. Um, it's a fourth cousin or something. But I have a cousin who raises sheep. And it wasn't long ago, about a month ago, I was at his farm and uh, we got to see the sheep. And can I tell you that my cousin doesn't shepherd, Okay. He has a fence and he keeps them in the fence and he brings them in the barn and he has hay. Okay, this isn't shepherding. None of us have seen shepherds, not like first century shepherds, probably. 
You have to understand that in Israel, it was a pastoral culture. It was based around sheep. Because sheep, sheep and goats can provide milk. They can provide meat. They can provide fur. They can provide skin. They're used in the sacrificial system. Sheep are a bedrock of Israel's economy. You understand that? They're just huge for the economy. Shepherds have total care of the sheep. They would lead the sheep and make sure that they had everything that they needed in their variety as they traveled. They had to stay close to fresh water. It couldn't be too running water. It had to be fresh water, but it had to be water they wouldn't drown in. So they had to know. They had to know the geography to know where all the, all the green was. They had to know where all of the waters were that they could go to. They had to know where the dangerous parts were. So they had to be strategic about that. They had to know the geography. They had to be able to plan that. The other thing about sheep is they will overgraze the fields. So you have to keep them moving. They can't stay in one area too long or they will eat the grass to the point where it won't grow back for years. Okay, so they had to keep the sheep moving. Uh, they had to pay attention to bad weather. They had to protect their value. They had to breed and birth the sheep. They had to go after lost sheep, take care of hurt and sick sheep. Shepherds had to protect their sheep from wild animals and from robbers. If sheep have that much value, people would want to take the sheep. This is partly why they would carry around a rod and a staff. A rod would be a short club that would be in your, uh, in your belt, and your staff was your longer stick that you could use for protecting yourself and also for sort of guiding the sheep. Shepherding was a job that took an incredible amount of foresight, planning, and execution. Shepherds had to be strong leaders. Author Timothy Laniac says it this way. This occupation put the shepherd in a constant state of negotiation with an unpredictable physical and social environment. For these and other reasons, the shepherds naturally became an icon of leadership. End quote. So if you go back and you read literature from the Near East, you're going to find that kings are described as shepherds. Gods are described as shepherds. Because there was nothing in the culture that said leadership more than shepherding. Now you see, when we think of shepherding, we just think of this kind care for baby sheep. That's what we think of. The shepherd with the sheep on his shoulders, you know what I mean? But, but sheep, that, that was the strategic, those were the strategic thinkers of their time. Shepherding was the major metaphor for leadership, for royalty, and for the divine. Think about in the Bible how many characters are shepherds. Abel, Abraham, Lot, Isaac, Jacob, Rachel, Laban, Jacob's 12 sons, Moses, David, and Amos. Shepherds were the first witnesses to the birth of Christ, and Jesus himself is called the good shepherd. So are you catching how big this image is, right? You're getting a little bit bigger picture? So when this psalm starts out and says, Yahweh, the Lord is my shepherd, it's huge. It's huge. It's not just take care of me when I'm, when I'm down. Okay? This is a shepherd who leads, who guides, who protects, who gives everything. And then the Hebrew says, I shall not want, or I want nothing. I don't want. That's what it really says. Which is an interesting phrase, because everywhere else in the Hebrew that this phrase is used, it says, I want for nothing. There's like a, a describer. I don't want anything, it'll say. But here it just says, I don't want. I don't want at all. There's no wanting in my life. Everything I need, everything I want is provided for by my shepherd. That's a good shepherd. 
There's another side to this metaphor we don't often think about. If he is the shepherd, what does that make us? Sheep. The problem is, I don't know if you know this or not, if you're ever around sheep, sheep are really dumb. Okay? I'm not trying to say this personally about you. I'm saying, though, in the metaphor, the sheep are dumb. Sheep will do dumb things. They will get into trouble really, really fast. Okay? There's a reason we have a parable about a lost sheep. Because they just wander off. Okay? They look down at the grass and they just keep wandering after the grass. They will drown. They will get in trouble. uh, They will wander off. Sheep had to be totally trusting of their shepherd. They had to be totally dependent of their shepherd. And they had to know their shepherd's voice. This comes up in uh, in the Gospels too. But I I saw this when I was at my my cousin's house, my cousin's farm. That when the, the mama sheep would want the baby sheep to come out of all the sheep, they would baa. And then once they would baa, the babies would know the mother's cry and would follow them out. And you could watch this. after I, went, I happened to be there with my kids after they were all eating. And then they wanted to go out to the field. So the moms would go, baa. The babies would come. Sometimes there'd be twins, so two would go out. They knew, they knew the voice of their mother. But the same thing would happen with, with the uh, shepherd. They would know the voice of their shepherd. Okay, so a lot of times when you would sleep at night, you would bring all the sheep in this one area together into this one space that had a wall around it, and the shepherds would sleep across. It was that's called the sheep gate. Jesus says, I'm the sheep gate. And then in the morning, all the shepherds would call their sheep, and the sheep would follow the voice of their shepherd. So this is a challenging place. See, we're only in the first verse of the 23rd Psalm, but you've got to understand how humbling it is to call yourself a dumb sheep and to say that the Lord is your shepherd. How humbling it is to say, yep, Lord, lead me, provide for me, take care of me, I'll do whatever you want. Okay? How often do we want? How often can we say, I shall not, I don't want. I don't want, i got everything I need. Or is it, well, I have everything I need but Lord, you know, $500 a month would be great. Uh, this car would be great. And this, uh, this job would be a fantastic, Lord, if I could get this. How hard is it to say the Lord is my shepherd and I'm totally reliant on him and dependent on him? You can see how much uh, the shepherd does in the psalm. Leads beside green pastures, Right? Well, now you understand that because you had to go to green pastures to eat, okay? And you, you, you had to be led there. And so the shepherd leads you to rest, to comfort, and to security. He leads us beside still waters. See, sheep can drown in moving waters. It has to be the right kind of water. It can't be so still that it's stagnant, that it's bad. But it's got to be water that's slow enough that we can handle it. He leads us on paths of righteousness. He knows where to go. He knows where the right path is, and he leads us. It's interesting, Jesus is not a pasture, but he is called the bread of life. Jesus is not called still waters, but he is called living water. He's not called a path of righteousness, but he is called the way, the truth, and the life. And so in Jesus, God is leading us. And not just in good times, but in bad. Even though, what's the famous phrase? I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay, 
We don't, we, you, I don't know how much time you spend in valleys, but if you get deep, deep valleys that you have to travel through, you get shadows. And the sun may be up everywhere else, but if you're in the valley, you don't see the sun for a long time. Valleys were dangerous places. Dangerous places to get stuck, dangerous places to be robbed. And the shepherd had to lead the sheep through those very difficult times. This is why this psalm is used so much in funerals, because in funerals we so keenly feel the shadow of death. Although we feel it in our own struggles too, don't we? Can't this shadow of death, have you ever felt like you have a shadow over you? And maybe it's not death, maybe it's other things. But here's the key line, the key word in the whole psalm. Through the valley. Through the valley. He doesn't just lead us into the valley. He doesn't just, we, we don't stay in the valley. Okay, we don't move into the valley because our shepherd doesn't leave us there. He leads us through the valley. And I can't tell you how many people I've seen at funerals and seen deal with grief that try to avoid dealing with the grief. And in the end, all they do is move into the valley. They never come through it. And I can't tell you how many people try to rush through the valley instead of actually going through it. You got to be able to live through that grief. But you also mark that the God is leading you through. And because we trust our shepherd, we fear no evil in that moment. For the Lord is with us. We are not alone as sheep, even in the valley, just as we're not alone in the green pastures. Now, the metaphor is sort of changing here. It's still shepherd, and we're still talking about shepherding themes, but the, the theme becomes now a little more travel. And we need to pay attention to travel because you and I travel all the time. We don't quite think about how dangerous travel was. But in these days, where, where there's not police, okay, where there's not highways, there's just roads, you are in a lot of danger when you travel. And travel takes a long time because there's no cars. And so what do you do if you have to go on a five-day journey? You have to go on a 30-day journey. There's no Motel 6 either. Okay? You either have to camp along the road or you have to rely on the hospitality of those who would take care of travelers. And that was part of the expectation is that you would take care of travelers. But it was not safe and it was not easy. There's a reason why somebody gets mugged in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because it's dangerous to travel. But this is also like a shepherd who takes care of us. The host does three things. God's rod and staff protect and guide us. And now that you know what a rod and staff are, you know how, how great that image was. God sets a generous table before us. Even in front of our enemies, God is taking care of us. And, and it's, a, it's not a little table. It's not a real meal, little meal. It's not a just eat your sandwich on your way. It's God is blessing us even as our enemies are bearing down on us, even as we're walking through the valley. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This, this sense of oil being anointing, being blessing, being God's favor and God's presence with us. And then how does the psalm end? Goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and mercy. These have sometimes been called the hounds of heaven. The hounds of heaven. I like to think of them. I saw a blog this week. I thought this was kind of funny. To think of them as the sheepdogs of heaven. Okay, the sheepdogs of the shepherd. Goodness and mercy follow. And you got to get this image. Okay, 
that wherever you go, goodness and mercy follow you. Okay, goodness and mercy. So do I have brave volunteers that might be goodness and mercy? I, got, I have goodness right here. Do I have mercy? Come here, Dan. We got goodness and mercy. So get the image, okay? It, it says follow, okay? Don't let the metaphoric language get buried. They follow. So if I go over here, oh, they pick this up real fast. <laughs> if I go over here, if I go back over here, I want to go back over here. See? Now listen. I can really feel goodness and mercy right now. Okay? But sometimes you go through parts of life, we're backup guys, where you don't feel goodness and mercy. But the promise is even when you're going through the valley, you can trust that goodness and mercy are, are on your tail. Okay? Don't, don't, don't skip over the image of the Bible. They're following you. Thanks, guys. Can you give goodness and mercy a round of applause? They're following you. Goodness and mercy are out to get you. Okay? And um, it doesn't always feel like that. It doesn't always feel like that. But we trust that we have a good shepherd and goodness and mercy are coming after us. Then it says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, when we read this phrase, we often, especially at funerals, think of the whole thing about Jesus preparing a house with many rooms, um, that God is preparing a house for us, and we think of it as heaven. The, the, there's two problems with that. One is, we as a faith, and I'm going to be talking about this a lot in my next sermon series, we in our faith talk about heaven without realizing that that's not how the story ends. Okay? Heaven comes down to earth. So the end point isn't heaven, the end point is earth, a new earth. Okay, uh, and I will be spelling that out in a lot of detail with upcoming sermons. Okay, but the other problem with that is that in the Old Testament, the house of the Lord is not heaven. The house of the Lord is the temple, always. Okay, and so when it says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, it's talking about church. It's talking about the importance of church and of community and of praising God forever. That this is an important part of what we do is we come together and we praise God. Now, I want you to notice one more thing to wrap this up about the psalm that most people don't notice. In fact, I had never noticed it until I read about it in the last two weeks. Some people, when they organize this, when they outline this, they talk about the shepherd and then the travel or host, and they sort of divide the psalm in half. But there's something else interesting that's going on in this psalm. The tense, the way the phrase is going on uh, changes. It starts out, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. He restores my soul. And then it says, I will fear no evil for what? You are with me. Your rod, your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before us. And then it ends, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, if you're a high school English teacher, this is a big F. Okay? You, you, change, you can't change the subject like this. Okay? You're supposed to keep it consistent throughout. But, but here's what happens in the psalm. The psalmist starts out talking about God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall know. He leads. He leads. But pretty soon he can't talk about God anymore. What's he doing? He's talking to God. Your rod, your staff, you are with me. See, talking about God leads this psalmist to prayer. 
And then this prayer of this psalmist leads him to talk about God in deeper, deeper ways. I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Talking about God leads to talking to God and leads to talking about deeper things about God. You want to improve your prayer life? Learn more about God. Okay, you want to improve your prayer life? Improve your Bible reading life. Because the more you talk about God, the more you end up praising God for what he's done in your life. The more you understand it, the more you pray about it. And then the more you talk about deeper things. It's this great cycle that's modeled for us in the Psalms. Talk about who God is, and then you end up talking to God even more. The problem is when we get into the valley of the shadows, we, we focus on our problems. And it's easy to do. It's easy to do. But if you can turn around and praise God for all he's done for you in the midst, praise God for what he's done in history, praise God for what he's done in the scriptures, praise God for what he's done in other people's lives, it brings you to prayer in a deeper way. So sometimes it's great to pray, uh, to sing the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And sometimes it's great to sit back and listen as somebody else sings it because you're not able to sing it. We're about to sing Amazing Grace. And if you can't sing that song, listen to everybody else sing it. Because sometimes the encouragement we need is hearing about what God has done in other people's life. And that brings us back to prayer. See, this is not an overly uh, complex psalm. It's an overly familiar psalm. And I pray you never read it again. And I pray you are challenged by the ultimate question of this psalm. And that is, who are you trusting? Are you really trusting your shepherd to take care of you? Or are you trusting in other things that are guaranteed to let you down? And maybe it's hard for you to trust right now because you're going through the valley, but I'm telling you, goodness and mercy are on your tail. Okay, trust. Keep marching. Your good shepherd will lead you to the other side of the valley. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for all you've done, you've done for us. Thank you for all you're going to do for us. Help us to see you as our good shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen.